Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas related to sports, med, rehab, and performance. So to join the forum or a potential, uh, potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for upcoming seminars, events, webinars, all that good stuff, details can be found on the website clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can be found on that same website, YouTube, iTunes, soon to be Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, all the fancy ones. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California. My clinic is called Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic and owner of Shenandoah Valley Performance Clinic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. What's up, Mike? Hey, Quinn. How's it going? Good. I'm I'm always gonna have, just have to laugh when I say the name of your clinic. I don't know why, because I always feel like I'm fucking. I I did not know you were from Shenandoah Valley. Yeah, man, we've that's been in the, uh... the land of my fathers. Oh, really? Yeah, or specifically my father. That's awesome. Yeah, we've been in Harrisonburg for uh, three years now. That's awesome. He's from uh, like Stanton, Fort Defiance area. I'll be in Stanton this weekend. Nice. Greg, don't talk yet. Our listeners don't know who you are. <laughs> You're ruining it. <laughs> I just got excited. I'm sorry. Okay. I met like two people from the Shenandoah Valley who weren't currently <laughs> living in the Shenandoah Valley. There you I, go. Before I forget, Greg, you, I, I think you might have to talk about some of your uh, of your relatives, though, and their like superhuman strength ability. Okay. I remember some amazing stories that you told. Okay. Uh, and so a good segue. We're also joined by a very special guest, Greg Knuckles, who is the founder of StrongerByScience.com, which is an amazing educational resource for athletes and coaches alike. He's also the co-creator of Mass, which is a monthly research review on the topics of strength, hypertrophy, and nutrition science. Basically, they take all of the crazy amounts of, of science that comes out every day and they distill it down into actionable items. It's really a great resource. Greg, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell our six listeners a little bit more about yourself and what's led you to the pinnacle of your career today, which is being featured on the Clinical Athlete Podcast? Oh, God. Um, so a little bit more about myself. Uh, 26 years old, happily married, uh, currently just kind of living through a perpetual state of existen existential despair uh, as I tried to run two businesses while also going to grad school. Uh, I will make it, but I would not recommend it. Um, been involved in powerlifting for, what, 13 years now, give or take, 12, 13 years. Um, initially, just as an athlete, got into coaching realistically entirely too early, um, but just kind of been working along at, at being a better coach uh, for probably eight or nine years at this point. Um, started started a website uh, basically because my wife got annoyed at me uh, repeatedly because I would try to talk to her about lifting all the time. And while she is also into lifting, she's not as into lifting. Uh, so she was like, Greg, just shut up about some of this stuff. Start a blog. Try to find other people who are as weird and obsessed with this stuff as you are. Uh, so I did and people liked it. And, uh, so yeah, that kind of happened all by accident. Um, and now I find myself, I think, I think that's about it. <laughs> <There> it <is>. And <laughs> I, that's, yeah, I think Greg, we met in like 2014. 
something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's funny to hear you talk about that, about that history. Cause I kind of think back and like, that makes sense, but I've seen your blog evolve and I've, it's just been really great to see like your content has stayed consistently awesome, but the way that you've been able to present it and get it out to people's has evolved in such a positive way. So it's, it's just really cool to see. And Greg is actually giving us, he's done a webinar for us in the past and he's actually giving a webinar for us tomorrow, but tomorrow's not going to be anything to you listeners as you're hearing this, because this will come out after the recording. But the topic on the webinar was female specific considerations in resistance training, which I think is a really uh, interesting topic. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there. So we wanted to get Greg on the show to discuss it. So just kind of jumping right in, Greg, can you talk about some of the misconceptions that there are in regards to uh, female athletes and strength training and hypertrophy training? Like what are the most common myths that you hear? Uh, I think I, I think there are two basic categories of common myths, and I think they're the two basic categories of common myths about really any type of training. Uh, and they stem from the fact that people try to think in like binary absolutes. Um, so there's one school of people who um, basically say like, there's no difference whatsoever. Like what works for a man will work exactly the same for a woman. Um and there's really just no discernible difference between men and women at all. Um, like obviously men are bigger and stronger on average, but in terms of like how you should train them, things you need to worry about, things you need to look out for, uh, really no differences to speak of. Uh, and then kind of the other, other category of misconceptions is the exact opposite that men and women are completely different in all regards. Uh, men should lift heavy weights. Women should lift pink dumbbells. Uh, men get big and strong when they lift weights, women will literally implode, like just general shit like that. Um, so yeah, like there, there are kind of various flavors of misconceptions within those two broad categories, but that's kind of the two general types of misconceptions I see the most. And if we get into either one of those, if what are what is the reality you know what does the evidence say if if you have all variables kind of constant if you're if you're controlling for volumes and intensities are there differences in the response of the female athlete versus the male athlete in regards to strength gain over time and hypertrophy so to answer this question it's really important that everyone listening understands some terminology so there are absolute changes and relative changes. Um, and I'm primarily going to be talking about relative changes because in terms of absolute changes, so just sheer pounds of muscle on your frame or sheer pounds on the bar, men start off way bigger, way stronger, and they gain on an absolute level a lot more muscle and a lot more strength than women do. Um, primarily just because they're starting at a dramatically elevated starting point. Um, but in terms of relative changes, so, you know, um, a man gaining 10% more muscle mass than they started with versus a woman gaining 10% more muscle mass than they started with, uh, relative increases in muscle size, like relative hypertrophy seems to be damn near identical between men and women. Um, and relative strength gains seem to be perhaps slightly larger in women than in men. Um, so this is mostly based 
on a meta-analysis that I did for fun a couple months back, because uh, I have weird hobbies. Because um, there, there were a ton of studies, like we're talking around 80 studies, published going all the way back to like the 70s, um, comparing responses of men and women to resistance training. Uh, and there's never been a meta-analysis, uh, like a published meta-analysis, which is surprising because like meta-analyses are kind of very desirable publications because it's way easier to do a meta than to actually run a study. And metas also tend to get cited a lot more than individual papers do. So, uh, you know, boost your H index with minimal effort. So people, people like doing metas. Um, and there are a lot of meta analyses and kind of strength and conditioning that have been done that shouldn't have been done because there's like four papers and people are like, yep, let's do a meta, which is so annoying. Um, but yeah, like 80 some papers, no one had ever meta analyzed it. Uh, it was a topic that was interesting to me because I'm doing my thesis on uh, sex differences in resistance training. Um, so I was like, okay, like need a baseline to start with and find one. So I did it myself. Um, so as, as far as the hypertrophy stuff goes, uh, some studies use indirect measures of muscle size, like uh, lean body mass, fat free mass. Um, some use direct measures of hypertrophy, so cross-sectional areas, muscle thicknesses, um, like fiber cross-sectional area from biopsies. And with both direct and indirect measures, it, it doesn't seem like there's any uh, meaningful difference in relative hypertrophy, so percent increases from baseline. Um, and as far as strength goes, like I said, it seems that women um, gain strength a little bit faster than men do. Uh, a, a drawback to that finding is that, and this really surprised me. So like most studies period are done on untrained people because they're a lot easier to recruit for research. Uh, but of, of like the 80 studies on, um, strength and hypertrophy in men versus women, there were like five papers on trained athletes, which is, that's like a more extreme, like trained, untrained breakdown than pretty much any area of the literature I've come across. Um, so in those five studies, it also still kind of seemed like women maybe gained strength a little bit faster. Um, but obviously you can't take too much away from just five studies. Um, and so it could be that in the majority of the papers on untrained people, even though the men and women are both untrained, the women could kind of be like more untrained, if that makes sense. Like maybe a little bit less, um, like not doing like manual labor quite as much. Like, not, not trying to be sexist. That's just kind of on average how things tend to work. Um, society tends to physically expect a little bit more from men than women. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where that stands. Um, as a way to kind of fill in the gap, uh, since there aren't that many good studies on trained lifters, uh, one thing I did is look to see the strength difference uh, in power lifters at various levels of competitiveness. Uh, you, so I downloaded all of the data from powerlifting or not powerlifting watch, uh, openpowerlifting.org. Um, they have really fantastic meat database. Um, took the male and female totals, allometrically scaled them and then kind of compared based on percentiles. So like a first percentile male versus a first percentile woman, uh, like two really terrible lifters, uh, then 50th percentile, 75th percentile, 99th percentile. 
Um, and what you see is the relative gap between men and women shrinks as you move up the percentiles. Um, so again, that's, that's cross-sectional. Um, you can't necessarily imply causation from that. Uh, but it, it does seem that women across an entire training career might gain strength relatively uh, a little bit faster than men do. Um, but again, you, you, you can't necessarily assume causation from that. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of where things stand right now. So at minimum, it sounds like strength and hypertrophy, relative strength and hypertrophy gains are not really that much different, at least as the evidence seems to suggest now between men and women, pretty much the same. Yep. So programming there and pretty much the same. You're not going to have, go ahead. Uh, so it depends. Okay. Um, so there are a few differences. Um, and for all of this, I'll note uh, the differences within sexes are probably bigger than the differences between sexes. So it's not like just a complete <laughs> night and day difference, but in terms of like average differences, um, women do tend to be a little bit less acutely fatigable than men are. Um, so they can probably handle a little bit higher volumes within each training session. Um, they seem to recover a little bit faster than men do, even though that might also depend on menstrual cycle phase. Uh, so it seems that women recover faster during the follicular phase of their menstrual cycle. So basically from the start of menses until ovulation, like the first half of the cycle, uh, they recover a little bit faster during the follicular phase than the luteal phase, which is the last half of the cycle. So from ovulation, until the start of menses again. Um, and there is potentially a case to be made that if you're training older people, um, that you would need to account for age maybe a little bit more in women than men uh, because women go through menopause and that, uh, that, that represents like a larger physiological change with aging than really any big change that men would go through as aging progresses. Um, like with men, it's kind of just like a slow, gradual downhill slide. And with women, it's kind of like gradual downhill slide through middle age and then a pretty significant drop off at menopause and then more of a gradual slide again past that. Um, so yeah, there, there are some, and, and that's just kind of like basic physiological stuff. In terms of training considerations, you may you may need to keep in mind um, there is a quite robust body of literature looking at uh, like different rep ranges or intensity zones and their effects on hypertrophy. Uh, all except one of those studies was conducted in men, um, and again, that's also ridiculous uh, because there's like there's like around thirty studies looking like comparing high load and low load training. Uh, that might be an exaggeration, but there's there's at least twenty. Um, and again, there there tend to be like sports science research in general tends to kind of slant towards men. So about uh, when last I looked, the most recent data I saw was from 2014, uh, and about 60% of subjects in sports science research were men, and about 40% were women, um, which is still a disparity, but a lot better than it used to be. Um, like it was, it was something closer to like 75, 25 or 80, 20 back in like the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but yeah, so you, you kind of expect to see that disparity, but you don't expect to see like 20 studies in men and only one in women. 
Um, but yeah, of, of the studies in men, you tend to see very similar hypertrophy with high load and low load training. So high load being really anything above 60-ish percent of one rep max and low load being you know stuff you'd bang out for like sets of 20, uh, sets of 30. Um, there's only been one study in women comparing high load and low load training, and it found just way, way better hypertrophy with high load training. So in that study, Schwenke 2012, um, it was training with an eight rep max load versus, I believe, a 30 rep max load. Uh, and that, that, those general intensities have been used in men a lot. And all of those studies tend to find very similar hypertrophy. Uh, in this study on women, we're talking like, it's like a four or five fold difference in favor of high load training over low load wow. training. Um, so again, you don't want to put too much stock in a single paper, but that's the only evidence we have in women, uh, right now for that question. So it could be that like, if you're training an athlete for pure hypertrophy, uh, you know, maybe some of their joints feel a little janky, don't really want to load them super heavy. Uh, you might be able to go with low load training for a dude and then still be able to gain quite a bit of muscle and make quite a bit of progress. Uh, and that may not apply to the same degree for women, like pump style training might not really get them, uh, much of anything, which is kind of ironic because the, a lot of times like people market like, Oh, don't, don't go over five pounds and just do a ton of reps. Like that's what they market to women. Uh, and some evidence suggests that, like that does literally nothing for them. Uh, so it is what it is. Whereas like if a guy trained with the pink dumbbells, he might actually get a little more jack. Get something out of it. Yeah. yeah. Anecdotally, I've seen women be able to perform more reps at a higher percentage of their one rep max. Like, you know, a dude gets crushed by a triple at 90%, but a female mm -hmm. lifter hits it for like a set of eight or something like that. Is that along the lines of what you're talking about here? Um, to some degree, yes. Uh, so the research looking at, uh, like acute fatigability, um, so either within like a training session or within a single set, tends to find that women are less acutely fatigable than men, but uh, the difference shrinks as load increases. So if you have, um, and, and unfortunately most of this research uses like isometric contractions on dynamometers because that's like a much easier to control system. Um, but yeah, it, most of that stuff tends to find that like at lower intensities, so like 40-ish percent of peak contraction or something like that, there's a really big sex difference that tends to shrink as you get closer to peak contractile force. Um, but I, I've also noticed the same thing in a lot of lifters. Um, and I think it does kind of make sense when you think about, um, when you think about like why people fatigue in the first place. And I think it's less of a sex thing and more of a general strength thing. Um, and, and more than that, uh, a measure of strength relative to aerobic capacity. Because if you think about why people fatigue during a set in the first place, um, you know, you can only do a one rep max for one. Uh, like very few people are going to be able to triple their one rep max and then add five pounds of this. Like that's exceedingly rare. And that's just purely an energy thing. Um, you have a, a small amount of ATP and creatine phosphate that can, you can go through really quickly, fuel cross bridge formation, 
a lot faster than any other energy source you can use. So, you know, you got eight to 12 seconds of that one, maybe two reps, then you got to move on. Then past that, the things that seem to cause fatigue the most uh, are an accumulation of anaerobic fatigue. Um, and also like kind of concurrent with that, a decrease in muscle pH, uh, cause as muscle pH decreases, um, calcium has a harder time binding to troponin. So cross bridge formation gets a little bit less efficient. Um, and so the energy expenditure really of anything scales with work rate. And so in this case, like if you're moving a weight at a particular velocity, um, the weight you're moving is going to be what's determining the work rate. And so if you do a set of 10 squats at 200 pounds versus a set of 10 squats at 600 pounds, you're doing the same set of 10, but the set of 10 with 600 is going to burn three times as many calories. Um, and I think that, and, and when you do the math, so there was a paper by Brown in like 94 or something looking at the metabolic cost of deadlifts. Uh, and then Escamilla, a few years later, in like 2003, applied that to reasonably well-trained guys who could pull uh, 175 kilos for sets of eight and found that basically each one of those sets burned around 25 calories, uh, which may not sound like a big number, but that's about how many calories an average-sized person would burn running a 400-meter sprint. Um and so, you know, you're doing that in 40 seconds versus a set of eight deadlifts, which may take like 20 seconds. And that's with deadlifting like 375 pounds. And so if you're lifting more and more and more than that, like, you know, if you've seen Chad squat like 500 for 20, like he's fucked afterwards. Uh, whereas and Chad's in pretty good shape versus you take a relatively untrained person, have them squat like 135 for a set of 20. Like they're going to be breathing hard afterwards, but they're not going to be fucked up to the same degree. Um, and that's largely just energy. Like you takes more energy to lift the heavier weight. Uh, and so along with that, it's going to have a larger anaerobic energy contribution. Um, just because aerobic power can only get but so high. Um, so yeah, I think that is playing a role with, uh, fatigability within a single set of men and women. Um, Women tend to be just as aerobically capable or nearly as aerobically capable as men are, but they're also lifting lighter weights. Um, so I think that with even with relatively heavy loads, they can kind of hold off from having those really, really substantial anaerobic contributions and big drops in muscle. Uh, and that's especially true. Like, And that would be true comparing strong people and weak people regardless of sex, but because women do tend to be pretty substantially weaker than men, uh, you tend to see that show up more often than women. So it's not that they have some type of buffering capacity that men don't have, it's just they're, they're starting at a lower point. It's not as, it's just not as taxing potentially. Uh, I, I think, I think there are some sex, some sex differences apart from just purely the amount being lifted. Um, so women tend to have kind of on average about 10%, like a, a 10% greater proportion of type one fibers than men do. Um, again, not like a night and day difference, but potentially one that's physiologically relevant type one fibers being a little bit less fatigable than type two fibers. Um, 
And I think that um, apart from strength, just the sheer amount of muscle size probably makes a considerable difference as well. So um, there have been some papers looking at fatigue with blood flow restriction in men and women. And those papers tend to find that men and women fatigue at a pretty similar rate with blood flow restriction. Uh, that you and but still like a pretty significant difference in fatigue rates without blood flow restriction, even when using the same load. Uh, and the proposed mechanism there is just that men have larger muscles. As your muscles contract, uh, they swell, and that includes blood vessels. Uh, and so women just having smaller muscles, like. They're occluding, it takes them longer to occlude blood vessels when they're lifting. Um, and again, that, that would be more of just like a, sh a sheer muscle size difference than necessarily a sex difference. But, uh, men on average do have considerably larger muscles than women. So I, I think that does basically count as a sex difference. If you're programming with this in consideration, those differences are, not huge, but they're there. And let's say you're, you're programming a, a volume block or some type of, of preparatory block where your volumes are going to be high regardless. Are you, are the, are the literal sets and reps a little different from your female athlete and your male athlete? If, if training experience is the same or maybe you just anticipating the female athlete being able to handle a little bit more as you progress through the weeks and it doesn't necessarily change how you actually write the program. So, um, I, so the, the way I program is I tend to have people on a program where the amount of sets they do is determined by RPE. So I'll start them with, uh, like a, a load and number of reps. That's maybe like an RPE six or something like that. And just have them go till they reach an RPE eight. And then based on the number of sets they perform, uh, that determines whether their training max goes up or not. So I'm kind of looking for, I'm kind of looking for a weight and number of reps that they can do for like, depending on the lift or an exercise between like four to six sets or maybe like six to eight sets. Um, and so kind of the net effect is that if a lifter is less fatigable, uh, within a set or within a session, they end up reaching that upper rep or upper set threshold more often. So they wind up basically doing the same program, but training with heavier average loads because their training max gets bumped up uh, a little bit faster. Um, and I don't necessarily, I don't really use a training max in kind of tr a traditional sense as like, this is your actual estimated one rep max. I just kind of use that as the number that everything else is calculated off of. Um, so I do find myself with my female lifters, like going into meets, they'll be like, Oh, my training max is blah, blah, blah. Should I be aiming for that on my third attempt? I'm like, eh, not really. Uh, your third attempt is probably going to be a lot lower than that. So that's kind of how it resolves with the way that I program. Um, I just let the differences in fatigability drive load increases. And so volume tends to be pretty similar, but people who are less fatigable, uh, who do tend to be women wind up training with a slightly higher percentage of their one rep max. If we're on that, as you mentioned, a powerlifting meet, in regards to peaking and tapering, are there differences or considerations there as you're going into a competition? 
Yeah. So a couple things. Um, <laughs> if, uh, if I'm training a woman and she isn't on birth control or she's on some form of birth control that she still has, uh, like monthly menses, um, it makes making weight a lot more annoying. <laughs> like, you know, if, if, with men, you can generally predict like, oh, if you're waking up at this weight on this number of calories, you're going to wake up somewhere around that weight pretty much all the time. Um, but if I'm seeing like sometimes like a two, three kilo shift throughout the month, like, you know, first couple of days of eh, three kilos is extreme, but like two kilo shift, that's, that's not uncommon. Um, then like when we look at meats and I see like meats two weeks out and they're like, Hey, going to start my period around and I'm like, God damn it. Um, so in, in terms of like, if weight manipulations are, if you're going to need to do that, that is an extra variable you need to account for that you don't need to account for with men. Um, and I find that I find that women tend to on average require shorter peaks than men do. Um, but again, I, I think more, more than anything that tends to be a strength related thing than necessarily a sex related thing. Um, cause I, I've trained some women who are quite strong. Um, I trained one girl who had like a 485 deadlift and she took quite a while to recover and peak properly from meat, uh, after her deadlift, like after a pretty hard deadlift cycle. Um, but for the most part, like women tend to be weaker than men and weaker people tend to, uh, not need quite as long to peak. And I think that's just because they simply can't induce as much systemic stress with their training as stronger people can. Um, so, you know, like we might still be going heavy four or five days out from a meet. Whereas like, if like I I'm done with hard training, probably 11, 12 days out from a meet, just to make sure that, um, I'll be fresh enough for the platform. So yeah, that, that does also tend to be, uh, at least some degree of a difference, but honestly, like the water cut is the more annoying part of it. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if I notice that those two things are going to line up, uh, I just get very sad. And, and also like, I'll notice that I don't really do diet coaching for my lifters. Um, I just don't see that as being within my lane. Um, but just in terms of giving advice for like kind of where people should shoot for their weight to be leading into a meet, um, I tend to rec recommend to my female lifters to kind of stay right at their weight class or maybe a little bit below their weight class. Whereas I'm much more lenient with my male lifters being a little bit above their weight class. Uh, because even independent of water retention with the menstrual cycle, I find just anecdotally that men tend to have a little bit easier time water cutting than women do. Um, like a water manipulation that might knock off 3% of body weight for a guy might only knock off like 1% for a woman. Um, I have no idea why that is, but that's just something that I've noticed with, with my coaching. Hmm. Touching on the training diff or the considerations with the menstrual cycle, you sent us a paper actually before the show and it's titled Effects of Follicular versus Luteal Phase Based Strength Training in Young Women. And long story short, they recommended that um, females who are not taking contraceptives should base periodization 
of their strength training on their individual menstrual cycle. Do you feel that the evidence is strong enough to to base that? And, and do you base some of your periodization strategies around that for your female athletes? Um, so I don't necessarily do that because I use auto regulation and auto regulation lets me be lazy. Uh, <laughs> like as far as like big programming adjustments go, um, I do think the evidence there is reasonably strong. Uh, so the paper I sent you was by Sung et al. If memory serves, yeah. Uh, yeah. there was a, a more recent paper, um, like 2015, 2016 with very similar findings. And there was another paper by Reese or Rice et al. R-E-I-S back in like 2000, 2001. Um, that wasn't, it wasn't the exact same, but conceptually it was, it was a pretty similar paper. Um, that also, again, found pretty similar results. So, again, like not a tremendously huge body of research, just three studies. Um, but they do all seem to indicate that women respond to training a little bit better during the follicular phase than the luteal phase, uh, which which makes sense. So one of the other papers I sent you, Markovsky, 2014, um, looking at recovery in follicular and luteal phase in women. And that paper found that women recover from training a little bit faster during the follicular phase, which, so that makes sense that they might respond to training a little bit better in the follicular phase. Um, so again, like most of, most of the programming I do tends to use RPE to kind of find per session basis, how much volume people are going to do. Uh, I don't use that with everyone. Um, cause some people just don't trust themselves to rate RPEs accurately. And if that's the case, like that's fine. Um, but for most of my lifters, if they feel good about using RPEs, um, what tends to happen, like when I look back at my female athletes training, um, uh, oh, and, and one other thing to keep in mind as well is that, uh, something like when last I checked something like 60, 65% of women below 35 or 40 are on some form of hormonal contraceptive or contraceptive. Um, so, and uh, so I doubt for them that any of this stuff would really matter. So it, it is only applying to a minority of women in the first place. Um, but for, for women who aren't taking hormonal contraceptives, um, it, it does seem that there is something going on there. Uh, again, only three papers, not a huge body of literature, but all three of them come to, to pretty similar findings. Uh, and like I was saying, I tend to account for that just by letting RPE determine per session volume. I find they're getting in a little bit more volume during their follicular phase. And since they're recovering a little bit faster, more like their next session, they can handle a little bit higher volume because they're a little bit better recovered. Um, so I don't necessarily proactively make big program adjustments. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that people, um, use the type of program that they used in the sum paper. So, uh, what they did in that paper, just for the listeners is like, they had people doing three times as much training in the follicular phase as the luteal phase, which is a huge difference. Like no one's going to go from like, you know, I train twice a week, two months out of, or two weeks out of the month. And then I train six times per week, two other weeks out of the month. Like that, that's just not reasonable. Um, but yeah, like if, if that's something you want to play with, like you probably can get away with a little bit higher training volume as a woman, if putting that in your follicular phase. Um, 
And also something, something I do specifically do is I try to line up deload weeks for my female lifters with their luteal phase. Um, just because if they're going to get a better ROI with their training during the follicular phase, and it's a difference between of like, do I deload this week or next week? I think that's probably a marginal difference that might be big enough to just push the deload off for another week or maybe put it one week earlier. Um, so yeah, I don't move heaven and earth to build an entire training program around someone's menstrual cycle, but there, there are some, some little nuances there that you can account for. That's really interesting. Mike, you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, no, I mean, I'm just taking it all in, honestly, that this is good information and stuff that I can say I have read a little bit up on, but I've never like completely considered it as far as from a programming stance. Um, and I think it's good that we're talking about it. Yeah. And just for a reminder for people that Greg is, is given a webinar on this or an actual more detailed presentation and where all those resources can be accounted for and, and discussed. What was, before I forget, what was the name of the meta-analysis that you did comparing gender differences? Was that something that you've thrown up on your blog or is it not? Yeah, I, I just oh, threw it up on my blog. Okay. Are you going to try to get that published? Yeah. I think it was called Strength Training for Women, Setting the Record Straight. Um, so Brandon Roberts, uh, one of my buddies, he hit me up and he was like, hey, want to get this published? And I was like, sure. Mm -hmm. um, so it is going to get out there into the world. Uh, nice. He'll be the lead author on it. I don't care about academic publishing, and I think that the way academic publishing works is fundamentally immoral. Um, so I don't want to proactively contribute to that system. But, uh, and, and also, like, I, um, the stuff that I would be researching, the stuff that I'm interested in, is stuff that I care much more about getting out to a quarter million practitioners than like 2,000 people, like 2,000 yeah. academics who would be reading whatever journal they would get put in. Behind a paywall. Uh, and... Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's just, not what, uh, just not what motivates me. Now I want to so, buy you a beer and be like, tell me more, Greg. <laughs> uh, so, so shameless plug. Uh, do you guys know the podcast Everything Hurts? H-E-R-T-Z? Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I was on that podcast a couple months ago, rambling about this stuff. Um, yeah, like it, I mean, if if I was doing like in vitro research, like yeah, I'd be getting that published in journals all day because that 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 is stuff that practitioners should not give a single fuck about, but <laughs> academics should probably give a fuck or two about it. Um, but this the stuff that I'm doing is going to be more interesting and useful to practitioners. Um, and most journals, you either sign over your copyright to them. Um, and so like you can't actually put the paper out there uh, or you have to pay them a ton of money to publish open access and then retain the copyright, which is ridiculous. Like th that makes sense for like book publishing that you sign over your copyright um or like give them access to it rights to it because like you're still making money off of it but like in a system where you do all of the work you gather the data you write the manuscript the peer reviewers aren't getting paid and all of the profit is accrued by the publishers like yep. it's not literally slave labor but it's about half a step above it like that it it's one of the more immoral markets that I can possibly conceive of. 
Um, so yeah, if I have an audience that I can get stuff out to, um, I just don't want to contribute to that system unless I absolutely. And if someone else wants to take my stuff and get it published, I'm not going to be salty about it. Like, <laughs> it's just fuck off. I don't. I don't want it. <laughs> yeah, like I'll send you my data set and you can write it up. And if you want to list me as a co-author, cool. Uh, but it's just just not what I'm into. I was going to ask if, if that's the way you feel. Can you put my name on that meta analysis? <laughs> uh, you need to talk to Brandon. He's okay. the lead author. <laughs> you can start auctioning off uh, spots on this meta analysis, Greg. For like a thousand dollars, Quinn will list you on it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, also, what was the name of the powerlifting comparison that you did? Because I, I do remember seeing you post that and, and reading on that. I know it's on your website, but just the title of it. Uh, remember? I don't. Okay. I can. I can. Well, about two seconds. Okay. People can just Google "stronger by science" and. Powerlifting comparison, it'll probably pop right up. Uh, uh, it was called How Sex, Strength, and Age Affects Strength Gains in Powerlifters. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. That's a lot different than powerlifting comparison. Anything on the topic? I mean, this was awesome. Anything on the topic that is important that you don't think we, we touched on or that, you know, take big takeaways for the listeners? Take your time. Oh, so uh, one one programming difference that I didn't get into, uh, and and this is this is really more in your guys' area than mine. Um, but so two big differences in injury risks between men and women is that women have way higher rates of non-contact ACL injuries, and women also have like when you control for the sport that they're participating in women have way higher rates of concussion than men do. Um, the concussion stuff actually seems to be affected by the menstrual cycle as well. Uh, interestingly, not necessarily, if memory serves, not necessarily whether they sustain a concussion, but uh, how well they recover from it. So if you're going get to get a concussion, you want to get that concussion during the follicular phase of your cycle. Because uh, something about having a lot of progesterone in your system during the luteal phase kind of Bucks with uh, concussion recovery, um, but yeah. So um, in terms of, and I don't train all that many like non-strength sport athletes anymore. But back when I did um, with my female athletes, I would focus a lot more on hamstring strengthening because um, women have a much higher quad to hamstring strength ratio than men do on average. Um, which seems to potentially be a risk factor for ACL um, injury. And uh, I would also do a lot more like specific work on cutting and landing mechanics with my female athletes than my male athletes. Um, like if a guy just had really terrible landing or cutting mechanics, you know, I do work with him on that, but that was something that I would proactively do with all of my female athletes. Um, Cause that does seem to be a trainable skill. Uh, specifically the landing mechanics, um, which seems to be potentially like the, the riskier thing as far as ACL injury risk goes. Um, so in research, looking at like comparing male athletes to female dancers, um, the female dancers, their knee kinematics were identical to the male athletes. Um, whereas if you compared male athletes and female athletes in the same sports, 
um, you'd see pretty big sex differences in in the kinetics. Uh, kinetics or kinematics? Both. Yeah, both kinetics and kinematics. Um, so yeah, and with dancers, like that is something that they drill a lot. Um, partially from an injury risk perspective and partially just from an aesthetic perspective. Like they want everything to flow and be in smooth lines and whatnot. Um, so that does seem to be a, a quite trainable skill. Um, so yeah, with, with women, I focus more on like specific hamstring strengthening, um, and also landing and cutting mechanics. And, um, as far as, as far as concussion goes, uh, I get, I've gotten some pushback about this, but I tend to recommend that female, specifically basketball and soccer players do dedicated neck training. Um, because one of the proposed reasons why women have higher concussion rates than men do is just that their necks are weaker. And so they hit something and their head snaps around more. Um, and, most women don't want a big yoked neck, but you know, if, if you, if you can sell them on doing some neck training, uh, I don't think it's going to hurt and it might help as far as concussion risk goes. I was on the neck machine in college. Yeah, I've done it too. Yeah. Uh, where can people connect with you, Greg? And also tell them how strong you are. Tell the people your, your lifetime best one rep maxes. <laughs> uh, Best squat, 725 without wraps, 765 with. Best bench. Uh, I'm stronger reverse grip because I'm weird. My best regular bench is uh, 455. Best reverse grip is 485. And best deadlift is 735. So, not bad. Just slightly uh, strong. You can find me at uh, all my writing, strongerbyscience.com. If you're interested in my research review that I put out along with Eric Helms and Mike Sordos, that's called Monthly Applications and Strength Sport, or MASS for short. Uh, you can check that out at strongerbyscience.com slash MASS. Uh, social media, got Facebook, got Instagram, way more active on Facebook. Um, those are just under my name. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email, that's knuckles.greg at gmail.com. Well... Greg, thanks so much for being on the show. This was awesome, man. I learned a ton. Um, Mike, as always, thanks for joining us. Derek Miles couldn't join us again. Too busy saving lives at Stanford. Mm -hmm. Mr. Fancy Pants. Um, but we look forward to the webinar. And again, you're probably going to be listening to this after the webinar. So you can go on the website, clinicalathlete.com, and, and check that out. But thanks again, Greg. It was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Greg.